What is up, everybody? This is Danny, and I'm back for another edition of the all-new, all-awesome podcast. And, uh, man, I am a little bit beat. I uh, have been working really hard to finish up this new uh, Stargirl spec spec script that I've been working on uh, for the last several weeks. Uh, in time for the annual round of network uh, TV fellowships. So, you know, I think I've talked a little bit about this, but um, traditionally the fellowships, uh, there's one from uh, Disney, one from uh, Warner Brothers, one from uh, NBC Universal. Uh, they traditionally, they would all require a spec uh, script which is basically a sample episode of an existing TV show. Um, in recent years, um, both Disney and NBC Universal do not require a spec anymore. They are looking for original pilot episodes of TV shows. Um, so original ideas, uh, you know, not tied to anything that's already out there. Um, and, you know, that's actually something that I, I prefer because while it can be a lot of fun to write a spec, uh, there's not a lot of uses for it other than a couple of these fellowships. And so you sort of write a spec just for the fellowship, and there's not really much else you can do with it. There are not other contests that you can submit it to. There's not many people you'll encounter that are looking to read a spec. Um so for a lot of years, it could be a little frustrating because you would write the spec, you know, for the fellowships, and then that was that. Now, um, you know, I think that's been sort of recognized uh, by some of these fellowships. They only require pilots, but the Warner Brothers Fellowship still does require a spec. Uh, so, you know, given that it's literally for just one fellowship, that you have a very small chance of getting into. Uh, this year in particular, I really kind of went back and forth. Did I want to, you know, do a new spec? And you really almost have to do a new spec every year. Um, you can't really reuse one that you already have, um, especially uh, in recent years, Warner Brothers has really uh, emphasized that they don't want you to reuse a spec that you've already submitted. Um, and part of doing a spec is that you've got to have it be current and sort of fit into the most recent season of a show. Um, and you also don't want it to be for a show that has been too uh, long running. You want ideally to do kind of a newer show, um, you know, par partially uh, the one that doesn't have as, as much uh, baggage and partially just because that, you know, there, there's a certain um, uh, feeling that you should do a show that's more like buzzworthy and more um, fresh and not one that's been around forever. So like, you know, if you were to do a spec of, I don't know, uh, The Simpsons at this point, it might be a little frowned upon, but I don't know, who knows? Um, 
I feel like, you know, there's a lot of traditional rules that have just been in place forever. And a lot of those rules are starting to a little bit, um, you know, get, become more flexible, I guess. Um, but in any case, I decided to do a Stargirl spec. Uh, you know, it's only had one season so far. It's a show that I really like. Um, and it's, you know, it's DC Comics. So I feel like I was coming to it with a lot of built-in ideas about what an episode could be. I know the characters really well from the comics. So um, I had some fun ideas about about characters and storylines that I could bring in from the comics. Um, so I won't reveal quite yet what my episode was, but there were certainly some ideas and characters that I had really liked from sort of the classic uh, Jeff Johns run on, on JSA um, that I, you know, brought into the script a little bit. So uh, I've been working really hard on that. You know, I only had about a month to, to do the script since I had been finishing up uh, my feature, my horror feature, Doom Scrollers. Um, and so then I got started right away after that on this Stargirl spec. So I've been just working really hard. Um, you know, I've been sitting down to write at like 9, 10 p.m. after working and having dinner and doing whatever else I need to do, you know, going to the grocery store or whatever. Um, so I've been sitting down at night to write. I've been writing uh, until pretty late at night every night, getting probably not enough sleep and then uh, doing it all again the next day. So man it's a lot um you know it's one of those things that's really fun but when you have to cram it into such a short schedule um and do it late at night after you've been already sitting at a computer in my case for you know eight nine ten hours it can be pretty exhausting so forgive me if my if my brain is a little bit fried right now but i'm pretty much done i just have to do some editing so that's good. Um, hopefully, I will soon be done with, with this. Uh, and we'll see. Uh, like I said, you know, the odds of getting into these fellowships is pretty much minimal. Uh, you know, they take very few people and they get thousands and thousands of applicants. So I know that it's a complete long shot. And often I do question why am I even you know, putting myself through this, you know, killing myself to write a, a spec that may end up serving no real purpose. But, you know, I get competitive. I like a good challenge. And it's one of those things that you see everyone else, everyone else is doing it. And so part of me is like, I don't want to miss my chance. Maybe this is the year. So that's what I've been working on. I did, though, want to also just mention a lot of big news going on in the world of entertainment and pop culture. Um, you know, today alone, uh, as I record this on Wednesday night, there was a big story that, that Amazon is buying MGM. And there had been talk about this for a while, but as of today, it's finally getting closer to a done deal. And of course it has to go through 
you know, all the regulatory stuff and who knows for sure if that will be an issue, especially now with, with Biden and his uh, team in office. Um, we'll see if it was under Trump, I think it would have just passed, but now there might be a little more scrutiny there. Uh, although I guess under Trump, he was not a fan of Amazon. So who knows, who knows what would have happened. Um, but yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, obviously we're seeing right now in the entertainment industry, a ton of consolidation and, you know, all the major studios are now part of some kind of huge conglomerate uh, where you have, you know, NBC Universal is owned by Comcast. You have, uh, you know, big news recently with Warner Brothers where they had been owned by AT&T and now they're being divested from AT&T and they're becoming part of Discovery. So that's sort of interesting because, um you know, they are now sort of purely a media and entertainment company versus under AT&T. They had all, they were kind of one of several different things that AT&T was doing. So that's kind of interesting. Um, and then you have sort of Paramount um, and and that whole world of Paramount, CBS, and, and all of their associated brands. Um, you have uh, now MGM becoming part of Amazon, and and then you have other uh, sort of mid-level players like Sony, that obviously is a huge tech company, as well as a movie studio and a video game company. Um, so you know, there's a lot of players in the mix, but I think you know it is. I think there is reason to be concerned if you're just. Uh, uh, you know, whether you work in the industry or if you're just a fan, you know, there's there's a lot of ins and outs, and I don't want to spend too much time on it. But, you know, I made this remark earlier today. It's just interesting to think about, you know, even like when I was in college and learning about kind of the history of television, you know, you learned that for a long time it was actually not allowed for a TV network to also produce its own content to essentially be a studio. And so that's why if you look at, you know, who owned uh, the TV shows that were made in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and then even through into the part of the 90s, it was not the networks or the companies that own the networks. Um, it was separate studios that own that content. And there were certain exceptions, um, for example, like late night programming. Um, but there was that separation of church and state between studio and network. And it was, it was considered an important check on the power of, of the networks that they could not also be the content producer and vice versa, that the content producer could not also be the content distributor. Now that's completely gone away. You know, what you had in the, uh, I believe it started in maybe the late nineties and then, uh, or, or 2000s, um, you know, you had 
uh, ABC, for example, was bought by Disney, and all of a sudden they were a company that owned a network and a you know and a content studio um, that produced both film and TV. And then Disney started growing, and they purchased ESPN, and uh, you know then at the same time you had a company like Warner Brothers that was producing content, but was also part of you know, the same company that owned all the Turner cable networks like CNN and TNT and TBS. So, uh, you know, all these companies kept growing and soon enough they were all, you know, within the umbrella of these different companies, many of them owned networks and studios and multiple networks and multiple studios. Then came the age of streaming and that's kind of where we're at now where not only is it about the networks, but also about streaming platforms. And this is where things get even more complicated because obviously Netflix came in and sort of disrupted everything. And Netflix was interesting because when they first started, they were not really producing their own content. They were mostly acquiring content from existing studios whether that was movies or reruns of The Office or whatever. But eventually they started producing their own content and it was like a small trickle at first, but now we're in a place several years later where Netflix is one of the biggest studios that exists in Hollywood in terms of both movies and TV content. Amazon is also in that mix where they've been producing original content for Amazon Prime. And then, you know, Disney took a page from that, Warner Brothers with HBO Max, NBC Universal with Peacock, Paramount with Paramount Plus. All of these studios now have their own streaming service. And so, again, you know, a lot of others have written about this in more detail or talked about it, I'm sure, in a lot more detail. But the short version of what some of the cause for concern here is is that you think about the economics of the entertainment industry traditionally it was all right you come out with a movie it plays in theaters then it goes to dvd and home entertainment then you sell it to another tv network that might want to air it at some point um and you keep having all these different windows and all the people involved in the movie you know from the director to the writers, to the cast. And that doesn't just include the big stars, but also the people that just appeared in a small role in the movie that maybe weren't making a lot of money up front. Those people were getting residuals for each new place that the movie was sold to. But now think about a movie that's made for Netflix. Other than a couple of maybe international sales that happen, that movie is never going anywhere other than Netflix. And so there is no additional uh, process in place where people get paid other than whatever they get up front from Netflix. And so, you know, from what, what I understand, Netflix has built in some additional payments when it first, you know, does a deal for a movie. But that, I don't believe, is anywhere near the equivalent of, um, you know, what what the old process allowed for. 
So it's definitely a tough situation for writers, other people involved in the movie, uh, you know, actors, things like that. And then also it just limits the number of content producers that can be viable because, you know, if Netflix is in a place where it's producing all of its own movies, as an example, then that leaves kind of other studios that don't have their own platform a little bit out in the cold. And that's where, you know, a small indie studio really depends on making good money from a theatrical window and then home entertainment. But if all those windows start going away and it's just about, you know, these big conglomerates launching their own content on their own streaming services, then that really, you know, throws the entire industry and the economic model for a loop. Um, so it's definitely, I mean, you know, MGM was a, was a company that was producing a variety of movies and TV shows, everything from the James Bond franchise to, you know, shows like The Handmaid's Tale, in that case for Hulu. Now you have to figure that MGM is going to serve as an in-house studio for Amazon to produce content for Amazon Prime streaming service. And again, that's just kind of scary in a way, you know, that's a big player taken out of the traditional theatrical model. And who knows? I mean, it could be that they keep MGM somewhat as is and let them do their thing. But more likely, again, it's going to be them as sort of just a a production arm for Amazon um, Prime. And then, of course, all their library movies or older movies will end up exclusive to Prime as well. Um, and that's the other thing that is, you know, not ideal for consumers is that if, you, you know, it, it's going to be a, a situation where if you want to watch an old movie, you might have to figure out like, okay, is this an MGM movie? Is this a Universal movie? Is this a, a Warner Brothers movie? And if you don't have that particular streaming platform, you could be out of luck. So you know, that's where a lot of people come in who are still big proponents of physical media and say, look, man, you better buy your favorite movies on DVD or Blu-ray now because who knows? I mean, Amazon is not in the habit of doing, you know, Blu-rays for their original Amazon movies. You know, if you want to get The Sound of Metal on, on Blu-ray, I'm not sure that you can. And so... You know, there is there is sort of that fear of like, man, if you're a fan of like classic MGM movies, again, you better uh, buy them now because who knows if they're all just only exclusive to Amazon Prime, that's, you know, potentially a little bit scary as a consumer. Um, so some of this is hypothetical. Some of it is is based on things that we can pretty safely assume. But yeah, it it is becoming quite an inter, an interesting situation, and you know certainly these these cert, these tech companies are just getting so big, and there is that question of at what point do you sort of does does you know the government put their foot down and and say okay, there's just too much expansion and growth here, 
And yes, we believe in a free market, a capitalistic society, but if the direction that that is taking us is that five or six companies control everything, does there need to be some regulation there? Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, super interesting times. And I'm sure there'll be a lot more discussion about this in the months and years to come. So with that said, I'll be right back with my first pick of the week. All right. So my first pick of the week this week is something that I am admittedly very late to the party on. Uh, But this show has been an internet darling for quite a while now. And uh, I would say particularly a darling of writer uh, Twitter, where people just had been raving about this show for a lot of last year. And the show is Ted Lasso. And uh, I finally uh, bit the bullet and got myself an Apple TV uh, subscription. There were a couple things on there I really wanted to watch. And Ted Lasso was certainly one of them. So uh, I've been watching Ted Lasso. Uh, I've watched, I think, five episodes now of the first season. So I'm about halfway through the first season and uh it's a good show it's it is um you know it's uh just a really like well done kind of feel good type of show it is one of those shows that's a comedy uh but you know i think what's interesting is that based on you know, the show starring Jason Sudeikis and based on the character he's playing, I thought it would be a little bit wackier and more absurd. But actually, the show is pretty grounded and it's it actually, um, you know, is this isn't a knock against it, but it's less so laugh out loud funny and more kind of clever funny and then also there's a lot of real emotional stuff in the show and it really gets into a lot of character and relationship stuff and really uh is a much i don't know if darker is the right word but uh it's a show that's really trying to deal with like real some real emotional almost heavy kind of stuff. Um, so it's it's a unique show. I mean, and I, you know, when people say that it's a feel-good show, when I say that, I think what, what they're referring to is that the character of Ted Lasso is this almost ridiculously kind of upbeat guy who's always got a positive outlook on life. And, you know, the whole sort of, I guess, joke of the show in a lot of ways is that it's all about, you know, this guy, Ted Lasso, moving to the UK, to London, to coach a soccer team. Um, and he really has no experience with soccer. He's only ever coached football. He wasn't even that good of a football coach. Um, and he's basically hired by the manager of the team who, or by the owner of the team who basically wants to secretly tank the team. 
and they think that hiring this guy will help with that. Um, and so nobody really likes him. Everyone expects the worst of him. But he's so affable and so good-natured that he kind of wins everybody over over time. And, and that's sort of like, again, the, the overarching uh, joke, I guess, of the show. Um, but I think there is a, a much... I mean, it's quickly apparent that there's a much deeper element to the show where, you know, the character of Ted Lasso is like very upbeat and very positive, but also has some real issues and, you know, has been sort of, um, you know, by going to the UK, he's, he's away from his wife and away from his son. And part of the reason why he left them to take this job is because he was having all kinds of marital issues and it is kind of this weird balancing act of, again, the show has some sort of goofy elements to it. And the character of Ted Lasso is in some ways a little bit cartoonish, but they also really try to give him a humanity. And like I said, the show doesn't really go for a lot of the obvious, like broad humor you would expect it goes for a much more subtle humor and really plays it straight in a lot of ways with its characters and its sort of uh, emotional um, themes. So it's definitely, I, I think maybe I went into it with a little bit of a misperception of what the show was. And so it just took me quite a while to like recalibrate and realize what exactly I was watching. Um, but now that I'm about halfway through the season, I have begun to warm up to the show more and more. And I do think it's a really good performance from Jason Sudeikis. Um, Juno Temple, who I've been a fan of for a while, is also really good in the show and really a standout um, as this character who starts out the show as the girlfriend of one of the star soccer players, but who eventually kind of goes her own way and has a really interesting uh, arc of her own and some really interesting relationships with different characters on the show. Um, so Juno Temple is great. And, you know, it's just, there's just kind of a fun, um, you know, it's just a fun show to live with a little bit and spend time with, you know, the whole idea of this kind of, overly positive, overly enthusiastic, somewhat rednecky type dude from America going to live in London and just everyone wanting to hate him, but they just can't because he's so nice and so upbeat. It's, it's a very fun premise and um, it just makes for a pretty pleasant and breezy viewing experience. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> Again, I think the show does aim for a lot of a deeper, you know, thematic um, tone. And there's a lot going on in this show. So it is the kind of show that I think, you know, it sort of fools you into thinking like, oh, yeah, it's just going to be a light, breezy comedy. But it's actually one of those shows that, you know, an episode ends and you're like, all right, I need a minute to just digest that. So 
I do like it a lot. I recommend it. And I think I'll have to check in when I'm done with the season because I think a lot of my overall impression will be tied to where it goes, I guess, um, and how it resolves some of the the overarching storylines of the season. But it's definitely a very well-done show, and I think a very enjoyable show. And, um, you know, you can just tell that um, that it's the show that could have been very predictable and and sort of basic in other hands but they're really going for it and so that's admirable and something i think is cool so you know a lot of you i'm sure have already seen the show but it's well worth a watch is my impression so far and and worth checking out so check out ted lasso it is streaming on apple tv plus All right, so for my second pick of the week, I'm going to kind of take it back to an earlier topic, which, uh, you know, I was talking about the Stargirl uh, spec that I had, I, I've been working on, and coincidentally, there was a new uh, Stargirl comic book that came out this week that I was very excited about because very oddly... Even though last year the the Stargirl series premiered and was getting great reviews and people really liked it and fans were excited by it, for some inexplicable reason, there was no uh, Stargirl comic book from DC to accompany it, which was crazy to me. Um, you know, I feel like the character is a pretty beloved character, you know, if, if there was any time to do a new comic with the character, it was last year. But I guess for whatever reason, it didn't happen. And uh, finally, however, uh, this, this new special came out this week called the Stargirl Spring Break Special. And it was very exciting because it was written by the creator of the character and the uh, showrunner of the show, uh, Jeff Johns, who, aside from that, is just, you know, bar none, one of the best uh, writers of DC Comics that we've had in the modern era. And um, so, as I, you know, and he, he's not written a lot of, of comics recently, uh, so it felt like a really special occasion to have this new Stargirl comic written by Jeff Johns. So I eagerly read the new comic and I thought it was absolutely fantastic uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, it was just a really fun story. It did a great job of kind of reintroducing Stargirl for those who either didn't know the character at all or only knew her from the TV show. It sort of gave you some of the background and explained a little bit more about her place in the DC universe of comics. Um, but also it told a really interesting story that established a bit of a new status quo for the character and for the DC universe um, and helped to reestablish some of the timeline that had been due to various reboots and retcons and everything 
somewhat erased from recent years in DC Comics. So I've talked about some of this before, and I know it can get a little bit confusing and complicated, but I guess the short version is, you know, Jeff Johns, he created Stargirl, I want to say in like the mid 2000s. Um, and, you know, it was a, it was sort of a brand new character um, that was somewhat based on his sister who had tragically passed away at a young age. Um, so it was a very personal project for him. And it was a brand new character, but it was sort of part of this legacy of characters that dated back all the way to the 1940s when there was a character called uh, Starman. Uh, and there was another character called uh, the Star Spangled Kid. And Courtney Whitmore, who became Stargirl, was sort of part of the legacy of those characters and fit into this this broader legacy uh and it was done in a really cool way that paid tribute to these older heroes uh from the golden age of comics um you know basically uh the short version is that uh star girl courtney whitmore her mom gets married to this guy named pat dugan it turns out pat dugan who Courtney had thought was just kind of a goofy uh, everyman who happened to be a mechanic. He, in his in his previous life, had actually been a superhero sidekick named Stripesy, who back in the golden age of you know the World War II era, the 1940s, he was the sidekick to uh, the Star Spangled Kid, and it was sort of this funny dynamic where the Star Spangled Kid was a teenager. But the adult Stripesy was actually his sidekick. So <laughs> Stripesy was sort of, you know, a jobber in the world of superheroes to use some uh, pro wrestling vernacular. Um, but basically through various uh, time travel shenanigans, Stripesy found himself in the modern era and he married uh, Courtney Whitmore's mom. And Courtney discovers that Stripesy, you know, that Pat was Stripesy and that he sort of was part of this legacy of heroes. Um, and through another series of events, she also finds the staff, the, the cosmic staff of the hero Starman. And so she kind of combines the two legacies and becomes Stargirl. Uh, and at the same time, Pat, who wants to kind of mentor her and train her, he builds this robotic suit that he dubs Stripe and becomes sort of her sidekick, essentially, but also kind of her mentor and, and uh, you know, ally. And so the two of them, the comic originally was called Stars and Stripe, and it was all about the adventures of Courtney and her stepdad, Pat Dugan. Um, but again, their origin tied in closely to these characters from the 1940s and the Justice Society, which was kind of the super team of that era. And Courtney would go on to become a member of a new version of the Justice Society that included uh, a lot of heroes from that golden age, along with you know a lot of other newer and more legacy characters. Eventually... 
as tends to happen in comic books, DC kind of rebooted everything and they made uh, the unfortunate decision to erase all of that from the timeline. In the new timeline they came up with, heroes had, the, the, you know, there had only been superheroes for 10 years or so, and there was not this legacy of heroes dating back to World War II that mirrored the actual history of DC Comics. And that was really a shame because writers like Jeff Johns had done so much cool stuff with you know characters like Stargirl to build this legacy and to pay tribute to these older heroes. And you know, one of the defining characteristics of DC as a whole was that they had this legacy aspect to them. And so it was really sad to see that get kind of rebooted and retconned out of the DC continuity. But finally, as part of this new Infinite Frontier initiative, after you know a decade or so of, of having this very condensed timeline, DC is now bringing back that old timeline that stretches all the way back to World War II. And so this new Stargirl special sort of reintroduced a lot of those ideas and it established that there was the Justice Society in the 1940s, and there was the new version of the Justice Society that Jeff Johns had previously written about, and all of that was back as part of the continuity of DC Comics, which was so cool to see. And there was a lot of teasers in this comic of a new Justice Society that's going to, you know, uh, emerge that again will be kind of a mix of old and new characters and uh there was also which is great news uh a teaser that this is this special was leading up to a brand new stargirl series which is long overdue and very exciting again i mean the character has her own tv show you would think she would have her own series so maybe part of it was just waiting for Jeff Johns to become available. Um, but whatever the case may be, really exciting that Stargirl, who is one of the breakout new DC characters from the 2000s, is finally back in a big way, not just in TV, but also in the comics. And as part of that, as a bonus, this great legacy that's part of the character that stretches back to World War II and sort of embraces the entire history of DC Comics and all these great characters from that golden age, that is also back as part of DC Comics and the storylines that are ongoing, which is really great. And as a longtime DC fan, it's something I've been waiting for for a long time because it was such a shame to have all that great world building done and all these great new characters that were legacy characters that were introduced, including Stargirl, all sort of fade into the background as part of these various reboots and stuff over the last 10 or 15 years. So, you know, again, this special was a great story, but it was also just a really cool moment for longtime DC fans. Um, not to say you wouldn't enjoy it if you're, if you're, a newer fan, I think anyone who likes uh, Stargirl from the show can dive right into this, have a really fun adventure. But 
there is that added, you know, bonus. If you are a longtime DC fan, this is really an exciting, uh, an exciting book. So check it out. It's the Stargirl Spring Break special. You can get it now in a comic shop or, you know, digitally on Comicology. So that's my second pick of the week. Honestly, one of the most fun uh, DC comics that I've read in a while. So definitely check it out. All right. So for my third and final pick of the week, uh, this will be a pretty quick one, but I wanted to give a shout out to one of my favorite TV events of the year, which is the NBA playoffs. And this is not a sports uh, podcast and I don't want to, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into the, you know, the, the playoffs in terms of what teams are doing well or who I think might win or anything like that. Other than, you know, I'll just, I'll just talk for a second about how, you know, I'm a big NBA fan, a longtime NBA fan since I was a little kid. Um, you know, for me, I, the first, the first like time I really got into any sport was, when I was a kid and I started following the 1992 dream team that was a team comprised of, you know, all the best NBA players who were assembled to go to the summer Olympics in Barcelona. Um, after many years of the U S basketball team, not being amazing and, and not utilizing professional players in 1992, they changed it up and they created the all-star team of all-star teams. Um, and of course, that was also during the peak era of the NBA, where you had Michael Jordan in his prime. You had uh, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, uh, David Robinson. You had some of the uh, slightly older, but still... Uh, you know, really good legendary players like Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. Uh, and it was just an incredible assemblage of, of people. And I, you know, for, for a kid, these players, especially at that time, were so larger than life. They were just like real life superheroes. And it really felt like the, the sports equivalent of like the Avengers or the Justice League. It was really amazing, and I don't know if we'll ever see anything quite like that again. Uh, but I was super into it, and from then on, I was uh, obsessed with the NBA. And, you know, when I followed the Dream Team, Michael Jordan was considered the best player, but oftentimes in a given game for the Dream Team, the best player was Charles Barkley. And not only was he a great player, but Barkley was very funny. He was known as the most quotable player. And he would just do things and say things that were so off script and shocking for the time. You know, me as like a nine-year-old kid, I thought this was, this guy was the coolest. And so the year after 
the the next NBA season after that, Charles Barkley had a very high profile move from the Philadelphia 76ers to the Phoenix Suns in 1992 and 93. And the Suns immediately became a championship level team. They had Charles Barkley, they had Thunder Dan Marley, they had Kevin Johnson as their point guard. And so I was all in for the Phoenix Suns. Um, you know, the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan were sort of the the favorites and the, the just the unbeatable team. But the Phoenix Suns and Charles Barkley were like the really cool, badass, uh, you know, up-and-comers that were that were going to challenge for the title. And so I loved the Phoenix Suns, and I loved Charles Barkley, and I was all in on the NBA. And ever since then, I would just be so into the playoffs. And again, it really was – I don't know if people that are just growing up now can fully appreciate how larger than life the, the players from that era were. Um, and, you know, before social media and stuff that sort of makes everyone feel a little bit more on equal footing, these characters were just like mythic. Um, and, uh, you know, there were so many great rivalries during that era. You know, you had, uh, for example, the Indiana Pacers versus the New York Knicks, where Reggie Miller just had this like blood feud with the Knicks and with Spike Lee. And I became a big fan of Reggie Miller. I always liked all the players that were, you know, brash and had that kind of personality and attitude. Um, and so it, it brings me to today where it's so funny because two of my favorite players from growing up, Charles Barkley and Reggie Miller, are now both uh, part of the TNT broadcast team. Charles Barkley in the studio where he's been a longtime uh, host of Inside the NBA, which is the the post-game show on TNT. And then Reggie Miller is, uh, you know, a color commentator for a lot of the games. And, you know, it's so funny because I remember being uh, in college when Charles Barkley retired as a player, and I was I was very bummed about that at the time because it felt like such an end of an of an era. However, the silver lining was that Charles Barkley quickly then became a host on Inside the NBA, where he joined uh, Ernie Johnson and Kenny Smith, who already had like a good rapport between them. But then Barkley just was like the spark plug that turned that show from like a perfectly fine, you know, NBA post-game show into something truly special um, where over the years, you know, it's been, uh, I think, close to 20 years now because Barkley retired in, I think, 2004, I want to say. Um, and so I, I guess in 2005 is when he would have started with inside the NBA. So it's been like 15, 16, 17 years um, that he's been there with Turner. And it started to get to the point where, you know, even if you didn't watch the game or, you know, didn't exactly know what was going on that night in the NBA, 
inside the NBA in and of itself just became must watch TV because it was so funny and so entertaining. And Charles Barkley would just say stuff every night that would have me rolling on the floor in laughter. Um, and he was just so good at being spontaneously funny and just instantly quotable um, that it was, it was just great television. And Ernie Johnson, who's just a phenomenal, you know, analyst and, and sort of host, he was kind of the perfect straight man for Barkley. Um, you know, he was always like the consummate professional and sort of uh, always very straight laced and earnest. Uh, but, you know, he, he totally knew how to perfectly interact with Barkley and sort of be the straight man to him. And then Kenny Smith is sort of was sort of like the dopey, uh, you know, guy who was often the butt of a lot of jokes and stuff, um, but also just had a very outsized personality and was was very charismatic in his own right. Um, and so, inside the NBA, just is one of my you know, it it's one of my favorite TV shows ever, and. It's just always fun to watch, and there's a certain clubbiness to it where, again, I think over the years, a lot of the shows, for example, on ESPN, their whole thing is to be very serious. They treat every game like it's a war, you know, between two teams, and they talk about everything like it's life and death. On Inside the NBA, it always felt like you were just hanging out with your friends, with your buddies, laughing, joking, not, you know, taking it seriously because you were a fan, but not taking it so seriously, where you realize that at the end of the day, it's grown men being played to play a game for a living. And they were there to entertain you uh, and really no other reason. <laughs> and inside the NBA and someone like Barkley was always sort of in on that joke or, you know, he sort of knew the deal. And, um, and that made it just a lot of fun to watch um, versus the more self-serious competition on, say, ESPN. So to this day, inside the NBA is, is just a fantastic show. Um, and you know, I think as I've gotten older and busier and it's a little harder to keep up with the NBA, you know, game, you know, from, from game to game, from the beginning of the season, the playoffs is when I start to really tune in more. And so I'll end up watching a lot more basketball and a lot more, uh, TNT and a lot more inside the NBA. And so this is when I now get reminded of how much I love the show. You know, Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal, has since joined. He's part of the Inside the NBA team. And it's been a while now. It's been, I don't know, several, uh, probably 10 years, I guess, um, since Shaq has been part of it. So it's been a while. Um, and, you know, he has his moments. He can be very funny. Sometimes it gets a little bit too much. There, there's, like, too much tension for my taste with him and Barkley and they'll sort of snipe at each other and it kind of takes away the fun and, and gets too intense sometimes. Um, but even with that said, 
overall, I just have always loved TNT's coverage of the NBA. And there just is like an overflowing of love for the game of basketball, but also of just very casual, relaxed, clubby atmosphere that's always funny. And I mean, again, that to me is like, is just so, so valued because, you know, I, I never understood people that take sports so seriously to the point of making it into this big life or death drama. Um, especially the older I got, the more I appreciated having that sense of humor about it and being able to laugh at certain aspects of the game and, and, and things like that. And, you know, even with that said, I think another thing about inside the NBA is that because it has that, that atmosphere of, you know, hanging out with your buddies or whatever, it also makes it all the more poignant when they do talk about serious subjects, whether it's, you know, racial issues or politics or um, issues that might be affecting the NBA um, in terms of, you know, it could be anything from COVID to the, the rules of the game to, you know, issues with like league ownership and players and things like that. Um, you know, to me, again, like when you feel that connection to the guys on the show, you really perk up and listen to what they have to say when they do get into these more serious subjects. So, um, again, I just love Inside the NBA, even through its various incarnations and even through this uh, Shaq era that sometimes I wish, uh, you know, I kind of do miss the older days a little bit. But even in this era, it's still just one of the best, funniest, most entertaining shows on TV. So, you know, I, what I would say is if you're an NBA fan and you're and you're listening, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. I would be curious if you're not an NBA fan, try watching Inside the NBA. I think not only is it something that would still be entertaining, but it might actually make you an NBA fan just because you know, it's such a fun, just enjoyable show. So a shout out to everyone at TNT and inside the NBA. It's been, uh, for the majority of my life, it's been one of my favorite shows. And uh, it always helps get me get to get me excited about the playoffs. And uh, yeah, I'm into it. Like I, I, haven't, I had not been paying as much attention to the NBA uh, for a lot of the season for various reasons. But now I'm back into it and I'm ready for the playoffs. So with that said, thank you guys for listening and I'll be back next week. Thank you.